Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi and welcome to this first episode of the second series of Cross Section. Thank you so much for hitting play. I'm Jo Evans and today I'm joined by Peter Linus, Danny Webster and Alicia Edmonds. And we're here to help you navigate the news cycle and the culture around us as we seek to follow Jesus. How do we apply our faith to what we read in the news? How do we protect our hearts as we grapple with the endless stream of media at our fingertips? How do we be salt and light in conversations with our peers around the hottest topics of this week? These are questions we're going to try and answer here at Cross Section. Right now it's the afternoon of Thursday the 12th of May, but we asked on the Evangelical Alliance socials this morning what news stories you wanted us to cover. The people spoke and we mostly listened, so today we're going to be talking about the current political landscape in Northern Ireland, Roe versus Wade taking place, well everything around it taking place in the United States, and just because we wanted to, the Ragatha Christie trial. But first, this Saturday is the Eurovision Song Contest final. Danny, I know you watch Eurovision. For those that haven't seen it before, can you explain why it's worth watching? Are there any, are there people who have never watched Eurovision? How could that possibly be the case. So yes, the Eurovision contest is taking place. The UK doesn't have the best history. In 2019 and 2021, we ranked absolute bottom of the poll. We didn't get a single point, I don't think. Um, so we're not very good at it. Although apparently this year's entry, I hear, is stands a much better chance of doing well. Um, I actually listened to it earlier today and I thought it was pretty dull, if I'm honest, but I'm no music critic. So the semi-finals have taken place uh, on Tuesday and the second one is tonight, Thursday. By the time you listen to it, we will know who else is through to the final. The UK, along with a few other countries that put up most of the cash, get a direct route through to the final. And people were concerned at the time of Brexit that we might have to leave Eurovision, but do not worry. This is organised by the European Broadcasting Union, which is a wholly different entity, and it means that Australia can also take part in the Eurovision Song Contest. Vote so I'm looking forward that, to it. Danny. I will be watching it on Saturday evening. Can we vote to leave the European Broadcasting Union? Oh, Why would we want to? Why would we want to? Well, I <laughs> so when it comes to Eurovision, I, I'm pr proudly Irish in this one. We've won it, I think, seven times. I don't think I've ever watched it. I don't think I'll be watching this one. Um, <laughs> Within 24 hours of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the European Broadcasting Union had kicked Russia out of membership, uh, so they acted swiftly. Yeah, this year's got political. But going back, I don't, I don't know if any of you um, are huge uh, BBC Radio 1 fans, no, just me, but Scott Mills has been doing a huge campaign for this year to get the UK behind, behind or not the UK, wait, is it the UK? What's our entry? Yes. UK, great. <laughs> UK, <laughs> UK behind our, what do you call it? Our singer, songwriter? Alicia, entry. will you be watching this year? Entry, that's the word, thank you. <laughs> no, I, I'm, no, don't break the habit of a lifetime. I haven't watched it for over 10 years, so I won't be joining in this weekend. I'm afraid. 
And you say it will be getting political. Eurovision is always political. That's one of the things... There's two fun things about Eurovision. Is seeing who votes for who and which political alliances sway which way. And then just seeing the absolutely horrifically awful entries that then do well. Because they are good Eurovision songs. There was some controversy this week, apparently, that uh, Latvia's entry, which... Well, the BBC had to apologise on air for some uh, sweary language in it. But uh, it was, I think it was called Eat, Eat More Salad or something like that. It was highly tipped to get through to the final and it didn't make it. Wow. But this year, Ukraine are now the favourites to win. So we'll see whether that is a moment of European solidarity behind Ukraine. It would be quite special, wouldn't it? Well, it's a, it's a folk rap song, apparently. That's oh, how to yeah. describe it. It's rubbish. Um, you made me listen oh, to his research. <laughs> Apparently everybody likes it, but I was not a fan. Sorry. Controversial, but that's my view. Danny They'll probably me, win, the, Danny sent around the clip, or the, the video, early, earlier today, and it's, it's like grime rap about this guy's mum, and it features a flute. <laughs> I mean, it is incredible. <laughs> So anyway, if that if that little bit of analysis isn't going to get you watching Eurovision on Saturday, what will? But moving moving to other parts of Europe, it's been a big week in the in the news for Northern Ireland. So Peter, why don't you? You're our Northern Ireland expert here on the podcast, seeing as you live there and are from there. Can you explain a bit about what's been going on in the past week or so? Well, thank you. I think in this context, that's not a particularly hard competition to win, to be the expert. But I'll, I'll take the correspondence role. We had an election last week. Uh, Sinn Féin became the largest party. That's the first time uh, that that's happened, that a nationalist party has taken it. Sinn Féin have connections with the IRA and some of our troubled past. So that's very controversial on the ground. The DUP are the second largest party. And uh, the Alliance Party, one of the kind of moderate middle parties, has made huge gains. So uh, some surprises, some of that was predicted, but there were some surprises. What that means is that Sinn Féin will be the first minister if we form a government and DUP will be deputy first minister. Although those titles actually hold the same level of authority and power, the naming of them just really gets some people very agitated. And in behind that, the two big questions are, uh, are we going towards a united Ireland? That's Sinn Féin's desire. Or are we going to unpick the protocol in some shape or form? This famous protocol, depending on where you live in the world. And then uh, that's what the DUP want, because they think that has driven a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So it is breaking up the UK. So that's the fundamental question underlying this. Are we heading towards the United Ireland or a stronger connection back with the UK? Peter, do you understand the Northern Ireland protocol? Uh, probably better than most people um, so my brother was actually on Newsnight last night talking about this because uh, he runs a food business and he was trying to explain why uh, when you order mozzarella cheese you no longer have to wait a week and then just fill in a form to get it you have to fill in eight different forms and it takes two or three weeks to arrive and Marks and Spencers have explained the same 600 of their lines don't exist in Northern Ireland and they spend hours and hours and hours and hours filling in ridiculous paperwork to bring a good from England to Northern Ireland, which should all be moving within the UK. It's very complicated, but it's very frustrating for those of us on the ground. And um, Sinn Féin and DUP, they obviously have kind of opposite end goals. Is that why they won't form a, a government? Or is it because of the protocol? Like, it, what? It, it seems bizarre to me that those two groups are being asked to become a team, essentially, 
Is why, why won't they? That's a great question. Nodran's just over 100 years old, fundamentally designed with this inbuilt little pocket in, in the north that had an inbuilt unionist majority that wanted to link with GB. That has been over time tipping, and they do have absolutely fundamentally different visions for the future of Northern Ireland. Sinn Féin want to unite it with Ireland. DUP want to always keep the connection with the UK. And that represents roughly half the population in each camp. So uh, the protocol is the kind of current issue that flags that up. But there is deep distrust between those two parties. And there's a deep problem trying to form a government. And they have a mandatory coalition because of this Good Friday Agreement that you might, you know, it's 25 years old. This was the famous agreement that solved everything in Northern Ireland. As a necessary step, it said basically we have to have everybody in government together. That was probably right at the time. Now it's probably flawed because you've no opposition and you're kind of forcing everybody to form one big happy government when they clearly aren't happy and it doesn't work. And so we have no government and we can't even win the prize for the longest country without a government because we're not an official country. So Belgium keeps that prize from us. So we're miffed about that too. So, so on the ground, what does it actually feel like? to be a Northern Islander in Northern Ireland at the moment? Does it feel divided? Does it feel polarised? Yes, but prior to the election, I mean, civil servants run the country and actually most things are okay. So in one sense, you could say it's going along fine, but the election has brought things to the fore and there is a deep underlying kind of mistrust. And so the challenge for the church is how do you step into that space? What does it look like to be an honest broker around that? How do we facilitate conversations? In part because some of this is framed around nationalist, unionist language. Often behind that, there are strong links in those communities to Catholic and to Protestant. How much of this is religious? I don't think it is a religious conflict. I don't think that's a good way to describe it, but it clearly has links to it. So we as a church have great links with the Catholic Church. We work on lots of issues. And in that, what we're wanting to model is it's absolutely possible to fundamentally disagree on certain issues and to work together. Why can't we do that on a whole range of issues? Because actually the day-to-day -day running of the health service in Northern Ireland, the education system in Northern Ireland, isn't to do with the protocol or United Ireland. It's to do with where we're going to spend our money, how we're going to raise our taxes, etc. Those shouldn't be party political or uh, religious issues. So we do need to model something. And that's part of what we try and do in our work in EA, because I think there is a gap left behind and we can step into some of that space as the church and try and lead in that space. So you've, you've talked about on a church level and an organisational level, but as an individual, and, and I ask this partly because lots of people will be able to apply this to different situations in their lives or different kind of issues that are around at the moment. How do you identify on one side of that political debate without, without as, like you said, as a Christian, being swept into a kind of hate polarised narrative? So I think the honest truth is that lots of Christians in Northern Ireland are really struggling. So kind of as soon as you say anything political, it's seen as contentious. And so what the church has often done then is step out and not say anything. And that's not going to be a solution. So we try and involve ourselves more in local politics. Because as soon as you go into the kind of national level, it's seen as, well, you've taken a side on this key issue. And a lot of it then is bridge building at the local level, uh, friendships across what's seen as the divide. And we do have to make change. I said it doesn't affect the education. In reality, it does. The schooling system segregated. And so there are aspects that are really unhelpful. And we're going to have to reach further and, and push ourselves out. Actually, some of the other issues that we're going to discuss in this podcast is a really interesting one. We're on the pro-life movement. We've built really useful and effective coalitions across the divide because that's an issue that unites Protestant and Catholic, nationalists and unionists. Those things aren't relevant when we see a transcendent issue like that. So it's around those justice issues, those deeper issues of what it means to be human, that I think we can do the uniting in this moment. 
and then we resolve what are really ultimately second order issues because otherwise we put nationalism above everything else and make it an idol as in nationalism on either side and i think that's a problem we need to call that behavior out because there are a lot of christians on the protestant side who do see united kingdom as the be all and end all as almost a religious level conviction and i think that's deeply unhealthy and we need to say that's not appropriate you can be passionate about it but it should not be the be all and end all thanks peter i feel i feel very much more informed slightly unresolved but more informed so we're going to jump from one highly contentious polarized issue to another you may have well seen in headlines recently talk about Roe versus Wade. Danny, I want to come to you with this. I've read so many articles referring to the case of Roe versus Wade, but none of them actually explain what that case is. Can you shed some light on that, please? Well, at its heart, uh, Roe v. Wade was a Supreme Court case in the United States in 1973 that said there was a constitutional right for people to have access to abortion. It came about prior to that, uh, states uh, regulated access to abortion as they wished. Um, so there were different states in the United States would have different provisions. Some would allow it very widely. Some would have very restrictive uh, access to it. Roe versus Wade said that there was a constitutional right and relevant to the current situation, it said that that was deprived from an individual's right to privacy. So that core judgment has stood for 50 years and it's now that uh, a case was brought first last year looking to uh, reassess that nearly 50-year-old ruling. Brilliant, thanks. Okay, so that's the backstory. We've seen there's been loads of articles and analysis and discussion that's come out the past week, two weeks, I'm not exactly, I can't keep track of how long it's been. But Alicia, on, on, again, on the ground, real people, I just wondered how you've seen from your peers on social media engaging on this because that's something I'm always struck with as people post what's kind of the accepted view or the that seems the normal view on social media how, how do we engage with that as Christians it doesn't necessarily feel like the right place to have that conversation I just I, I, re, I want to know what you thought yeah just building on Danny's point about the Roe v Wade that the whole conversation we're having now uh, across the world is the leap that took place in the Supreme Court where Supreme Court judges are kind of considering a decision to possibly overrule that. And so there's been mass protests uh, in America. Uh, I have friends in America who are both in Washington, D.C. and Texas and are having to kind of contend with that, both Christians and finding it very challenging in that space to to really cut through. I guess here in uh, the UK, uh, Christian friends who would be typically described uh, by the, the lobby as being pro pro lifers are self censoring, so they're not engaging in kind of social media uh, conversations on this uh, for probably fear of retribution and, and vilification. Uh, but then contrast that with others who are of no faith at all. They're very much on the the kind of the the mass popular view on this. My right, my choice. It's about women's rights, and I feel that kind of conversation, that polarization, is not a help one or a healthy one. I myself have been on an incredible journey from being once upon a staunch pro-choicer to then being someone who was a pro-lifer, someone that really wanted to advocate for the life of the unborn. And that journey has been a challenge from early teens through to mid-twenties. And 
I have immediate friendship groups who uh, have gone through and made a decision for very, very different reasons. Some being in stable relationships, some not uh, in having an abortion. So uh, the conversation that we as Christians really need to have is not to just hold an opinion, but know how to have a deep conviction that Jesus cares about the life of the woman, the life of the unborn, the role of the father in this conversation and to disciple people through either past pains or current experience guilt and shame uh, and how we do that and I think that's the conversation as Christians that we we really need to offer relationally rather than liking retweeting and reposting a popular narrative yeah I think that's really important I mean this is such an emotive subject it is personal to many people in so in so many different ways worked in this space for a reasonable amount of time we've worked with both lives matter trying to say look we've got to look at both lives in this situation and we've got to understand this is a matter of, of, of human dignity. It's a matter of justice. It's incredibly important, but it, but it's very real for lots of people. The statistics remind us of that, and then the personal stories remind us of that. And it's, it is super contentious. I think the American system, I heard Jonathan Sumption, the former Lord uh, Supreme Court Justice in the UK, comment on this. By doing it through the courts, it was always going to be contested because it felt like seven individuals, or nine, I think it was at the time, took it into their own hands and decided it. And, and I think it was a stretch legally to put it on the Constitution under a privacy right. Whereas in the UK, we had a piece of legislation, and I disagree with the legislation, in GB in particular, the, the Abortion Act. But it, I acknowledge that it was, it was argued through uh, and democratically decided, even though I don't like it. And so I can resi resist it, and I would love to seek to change it. Uh, but I think that's different. And actually, it's one of the reasons why it's still toxic, I would say, in Northern Ireland, is it was imposed from outside in a different way, a bit like the US courts. And again, this decision doesn't immediately overturn it. It puts it back to legislate in each area. Now, that's going to be toxic and problematic, but at least then it's legislated in what we consider a democratic way, and each state will decide. What I think was really problematic with the court decision was the way it was done. And so there's that. And then what it's led to is very toxic conversations, because even though this was 50 years in the making, we haven't been ready on all sides to have a good conversation. We've seen people like... Karen Swallow-Prior, who we've interviewed on a different podcast over on Being Human, who's a really great pro-life advocate, is getting hammered in many senses on social media for saying we need to do better at the all of life, being pro-all of life. I mean, she has been an advocate. She's been outside clinics. She has persuaded people to change their minds on abortion. She has absolutely, if you like, died in the world pro-lifer and is still getting hammered by other Christians who don't think she's pro-life enough because she said, we need to support women. We need better uh, maternity cover and payments. We need better child support payments, which all of which are absolutely right in justice issues. I want to say, yes, I am absolutely with her, but I'm really concerned about the toxicity of the space around this ruling, particularly within the Christian world that I and we inhabit. And I think what you sometimes see is a almost a purism that people have to take the exactly right position mm. on all the topics that are related to something and if you say anything slightly wrong you are thrown out of the tent and I think that this topic in particular in US politics has been the thing that has driven so much of the, of the political division and, and it's actually been one of the things uh, James Mumford wrote a book called Vexed and, and he talks about package politics. It's one of my favorite books of the last couple of years, but basically he talks about the way that people associate political ideas together. So they agree with one thing, and because of that, they agree with other things. And you, you've seen that in American politics where 
support for one particular party where so evangelicals have overwhelmingly supported the republican party has often been built back built on uh, wanting to overturn laws around abortion and it has meant that therefore other issues have sometimes get gotten got sidelined and i think what we need is a is a more honest assessment that it's not about saying that there's some perfect middle way but it is about saying that there's no none of the solutions are ideal uh, that the parties aren't perfect mm. uh, that yes they might agree with you on one issue but they can say something that you wholly disagree with on another issue and i think that's the challenge for christians wanting to engage in politics is seeing sometimes actually uh, political parties might be useful for certain causes and we can advocate for causes through them and engaging with parties is crucial but actually we don't want to get tied into something so tight that it means that we end up being co-opted and being unable to speak out on other causes that we also believe passionately about the i mean the the overwhelming challenge that i keep thinking about is as peter rightly mentioned the numbers uh, of individuals women that have made decisions for abortion means that this isn't a conversation purely for the political arena or one that can be just about advocacy and leg uh, legislation. It's conversations about church. How do we talk about a very difficult conversation where it's possible that a family or an individual in our congregation has experienced a decision they didn't consent to, as in the male in that situation, or alternatively a woman who's come to faith later on in life that is now dealing with the regret of that decision and yet holding the tension that God has forgiven all sins. And I think that's that's something that as Christians we need to be brave about. I'm currently reading Ezekiel and seeing how God commanded and instructed him to speak very strongly to the people of Israel and speak about sin and to call it out for what it is. But there's a conversation beyond that. It's easier to call something sin. Abortion is sin. But how do we relationally support people in restoration, in you know, knowing that they're loved, in possibly the apologetics of engaging with people, of understanding that... As a Christian, you're not weird or bizarre, but you're engaged in a very nuanced and complex conversation that isn't just easy to fit in, just pro-life or pro-choice. I think that's such a, a helpful place to land it because I, I keep thinking, as I see things on social media, friends and acquaintances sharing things, and I think, how, where, where do we start with this conversation? How do I, you know, it doesn't just come up when I'm chatting with my friends in person, it's it tends to be something that people are quite happy about, are quite happy to put kind of in a public, in a public sphere, but, but that doesn't require a conversation. And yeah, I think we start by making our churches places where people, um, no matter where they fall in the abortion conversation, or no matter what their history is, they feel like they can come and be loved and be met with grace and offered the, the, the hope of Jesus. It's as simple as that really. And yeah, there is such a need for nuance and just better conversations amongst Christians because I think, a uh, big sweeping statement here, but I think a lot of Christians know what we're meant to think and therefore don't kind of engage with how to articulate that 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 argument in a, in a compassionate or detailed or constructive way and so therefore if 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 another christian then brings any nuance that to to that argument of of you know it's just all no 
we, we're met with arguments within within the body of Christ, right, where we can't even talk to each other. Well, can I just come back in on this? Because I think I think there is sometimes uh, an interesting challenge here. I think that people outside the church have very fixed views sometimes of what they assume everyone thinks. Mm. But I think at the same time in the UK. We don't talk about a lot of these issues in church. So in the US, you have this uh, often heavily politicised Christianity that is very closely tied to political issues. I think in the UK you don't have that, but you have almost an opposite problem, that that the issues aren't talked about in church contexts. Sometimes because out of an understandable concern about, oh, how will this be received? Who's going to be in the congregation? What, what situation are they in? How is this going to be received? But I think the consequence is, is that actually churches aren't always being equipped to engage with some of these key issues and key topics. So you've got a, a world outside that thinks they know what churches think and a church that is being inadequately equipped to talk about these issues and to engage with them. So actually, you've almost got the worst of both worlds. You've got what people think of us, but then actually... Christians aren't being adequately equipped to to respond to that. Yeah, I, I I think I definitely agree with the outcome of that, you know, that we need to be equipped within the church to have better conversations. I wonder, though, if part of the reason why it's not talked about as much in church doesn't come from a fear of how it's going to be perceived, but just an assumption that, that everyone, that it would be kind of preaching to the choir. Everyone thinks the same way. Whereas actually, I think either people you have people who are well-informed, well-articulated and agree. You have people who may not even realise it's that big of an issue. Like, we're so embedded in culture that, like, well, of course abortion is a is a, a necessary part of, of society. And then I think you get people who, who know the party line, as it were, but just don't know, don't feel the need to go deeper than that. Peter, will you say something else? I and then I really will. Yeah, well, on. I do. I, I, no, no, I think it is more of an issue. I don't think it's as agreed behind. I think it was. it's so culturally accepted within GB. And Northern Ireland has changed its laws to come closer to that. In fact, arguably worse. And so I think uh, churches, uh, leaders that I've spoken to around it know that if they were to lean into it, it would upset a significant number of people if they were to take a more pro-life, whatever you want, you know, the position that certainly I would hold. And it requires a lot of work to make that case because it actually has really big implications, which are starting to come up off the road conversation around IVF, around contraception. I'm not saying all those things, but because we have to think through the logic of what we're saying. When does life begin? What about disability? Why is the arbitrary 24 weeks in the UK in place? What is the role of men? How are we going to seriously have that conversation, make them both more accountable, you know, in this in this conversation? adoption, fostering, past brokenness. I mean, there's so many layers to this that are absolutely critical that I don't think we're prepared to do. And actually there were some really cheap slogans being used all around. So there's some irony in the, my body, my choice was almost taken by the anti-vaccine crowd, many of whom would have been very anti-abortion as well. So they were like, oh, hold on. There's, there's, and both sides were a bit contrary because those slogans are nowhere near deep enough. That doesn't get close to the issue. And the, of course the complication in the States was Trump's backing of it. and. How do you hold his serial sexual misconduct with what he did to stack a court that was helpful on abortion? Those are really difficult. We don't have those here, but I do think there's a bit of hiding away from the issue to some extent in the UK. And I'll say this, and you'll not be surprised, I think that's because we don't have a good understanding 
of what it is to be a human being made in the image of God and what that means in all sorts of areas of life. Now, of course, mm -hmm. we're doing a being human project, but actually I think that impacts our conversations on gender, on sexuality, on race, on abortion, on euthanasia, loads of those. We can't articulate well what it is to be a human being, where the boundaries are on that, and why we therefore think that's really important. And I think there's a lot of work to be done on that. And somebody should set up a project about it. <laughs> well, this is, a, um, <laughs> this is a, a massive issue. And you might feel like we've um, barely scratched the surface. But let me recommend that you go and visit our, our an organisation that's come out of the Evangelical Alliance called Both Lives Matter. A huge part of their narrative. Well, it's there in the name, isn't it? Both Lives Matter. The unborn child deserves to be recognised and women deserve better than what society is currently offering. So I'd recommend you to Google Both Lives Matter and check out their work. It's really, it, there's a lot of, of really helpful stuff there. Just in case you need a reminding, this is the Cross Section Podcast. Um, you can follow us, keep up to date with the work that we're doing by following us on Twitter, EA UK News or Instagram, Evangelical Alliance. And if you want to add to the conversation that we're having, if you have opinions on what we've said or you think that we've missed something, please email us cross.section at eauk.org. What stories do you want us to be talking about? Right, on to the last story, story of today. This one wasn't necessarily the one that the people overwhelmingly wanted, but we did. Celebrity trials that are in the headlines at the moment. So here in the UK, we've got the, the trial um, of Wagatha Christie, as it's being coined, which is the story of Rebecca Vardy and Colleen Rooney. This is a wild story where Colleen Rooney was sharing things on her personal Instagram and finding them ending up in the tabloids. So through excellent detective work, um, again, let me just explain for, for Peter and Danny's sake. On Instagram, you can select close friends to share your story with. <laughs> rather than just going around, um, to the masses. What's so, Instagram? Well, <laughs> it's, well, don't worry about it, Peter. I, I just, Peter, you are on Instagram, aren't you? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Somebody I'm runs an account for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Um, I have my own Instagram. I have no idea what to do with it. Great. So, uh, Colleen decided, Rooney decided uh, she'd, make up these fake stories she was narrowing down the friends that she was sharing these stories with she narrowed it down to three shared three different fake stories to see which would end up in the tabloids and therefore which who was the betrayer and then she did this super public announcement declaring that it was rebecca vardy now they're in the courts at the same time as that madness in the States, there's Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard, another, uh, oh, Peter, what's the legal word for when you're talking, you've said something false about someone? Defamation, kids? Defamation. Defamation. Fancy words for, um, for, for gossip. <laughs> um, uh, so the, another vicious, another vicious court case going on there that, that we can totally publicly see. Actually, Peter, I want to come to you you're you're the you're the you're the Northern Ireland expert and you're the lawyer in-house lawyer why why is it that I can watch the entire court proceedings of Depp versus Heard why is that so public I, 
I honestly have no idea and why she's not better protected after she gave her witness statement. I think it's just because it's America. Let's mm, just blame it on being in America. And the UK, because they always get little sketches out of the courts yes. in the UK because you don't have a live stream. That was exactly my question. Why, why are we seeing it in real time? Not a sketch of Amber Heard and a sketch of Johnny Depp. But Peter, what's your take on, on these stories? Particularly, let's, let's, start, let's go back to Wagatha. What's, what's your take on the stories so far? I, Wagatha's, Wagatha's mad. I don't get it. I, somebody tweeted earlier that this is, they should just each give a million quid to charity and be done with it because it is mm. absolutely crazy. They suggested the charity, I think it's through with the cancer charity for the BBC lady who's uh, raising money right now. But uh, like court cases are zero sum games. Uh, I spent five years in the courts. You always warn clients about this, like settle if you can, come away with some level of dignity or something, but zero sum game in court. Cause it's either all or nothing here. Somebody's going to be declared to be telling the truth and get the money and the other side's the, the loser and the liar. And it's, I don't get it. Why you would do this in public at any level absolutely beats me. I get that somebody's annoyed that they've leaked stories, but it's just a farce and it's just it's a tragic kind of reflection in our society at this moment that this dominates the headlines that we end up talking about it but it is where the toxic level of our culture goes you just let's sue somebody for something they've said oh it's really sad and and we've talked about polarization and this may seem like a celebrity case is a bit of a light relief in some ways but actually it shows how sometimes that polarization can be driven uh, by what we consume in the media by what we read by what we engage with by social media as well the, and the very court case kind of drives as peter has said to a one person's right and one person's wrong um the colleen rooney and rebecca riley have been encouraged to try and settle this to seek some reconciliation the court costs will be huge and whoever wins, even if they get their, their, some of their costs paid by the other party, it won't cover them. If they win, any kind of damages will be tiny in compared to all of that. So it's just the fact, I think it's a really helpful illustration sometimes of how polarisation can, can push us to these places where we want a right and a wrong and we want to be vindicated or at someone else's expense and actually this all would have been better if they could have worked out what had happened and agreed what was happening uh, together behind closed doors and to have resolved it and I, yeah I, just, I find it's wild but I also find it incredibly sad yeah and like with Colleen versus um or with Vardy versus Rooney as I should say it, it's also that thing of the media loves a cat story it loves pitting two women against each other asking us to pick a favorite I also find it a weird one. So going back to, to Heard versus Depp, um, like I said, it is so public. It's all out there. And yet it kind of feels like gossip. You know, it's so private. It's, it's the mess of these people's marriage and lives. And, and how as a Christian do I navigate that? Do I rise above it? But oh, it's, it's really tricky. Alicia, any, any thoughts on that? On, on the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard particularly. My encouragement to uh, us as Christians is to engage into the real stories that are worth talking about. And I think the Amber and Johnny Depp situation is one of toxic relationship, addiction and abuse. And that's something that we should be advocating for, praying for and engaging in that story rather than the celebrity narrative. That is such a sensible place to end this podcast. Thank you. So we've been talking about polarisation and I guess the wonderful the wonderful thing is that we 
believe in Jesus who conquers all. He cuts through, he loves the enemy, and he calls us to pray for our enemies. So hopefully out of everything we've said, you can get some wisdom, some things to help you navigate the news in this next week ahead of you. Thank you so much for joining us. And as always, we've got to say a big thank you to Chris Ringland, who does all of our post-production. This has been Cross Section, and we will see you again next week. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.